Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced on Wurundjeri land at 3CR's studios in Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast right across this continent on the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. We, we had to move because of what the sea is um, doing to us as a people of the islands. I mean, a lot of us will see these pictures and we say, so what's wrong? These islands look really beautiful. It's true. They look really beautiful, but the sea that we love, the sea that we grew up with as island people is, is now turning against us as a people who live on those islands. And this is why we, we have to move. Our shorelines are eroding fast. The people of the Carteret Islands, a coral atoll off the coast of Bougainville in Papua New Guinea, have been called the world's first climate refugees. Like many low-lying islands in the Pacific, the Carterets have been experiencing the effects of climate change firsthand. They have watched as their shorelines have been eroded by the sea, king tides have swept right across their small islands, and salt water has literally bubbled up through the ground. The people of the Carterets have asked for assistance from their government and for governments internationally, but so far nothing has been forthcoming. So they decided they had to organise themselves. In 2006, the chiefs of the Carteret Islands formed Tulele Piesa, to organise the relocation of their population. And in 2007, Ursula Rakova visited Australia to talk about the plight of the Carterets and the work they were doing. Nine years later, she has returned, and the message is as urgent as ever. My name is Ursula Rakova, and I come from a small island in the Pacific, Carterets, which is part of Papua New Guinea. I am the executive director of a local organization that was initiated by the Council of Elders from Carteret, basically to relocate 1,700 people from the atoll to mainland Bougainville. Carteret is 86 kilometers of uh, Bougainville, uh, 54 nautical miles of the northeast of Bougainville. So the islands are very isolated, but they... Um, just like any other Pacific atoll, um, the people are isolated, but they are peace-loving people. We live mainly off the sea. Um, our food is from the sea. Uh, we've been fisher folks for many generations. And how many people? How many people do live on the island? There is a, tot- a population of two thousand seven hundred people. But we are also part of the um, outer atolls of Bougainville. Um, we are Melanesians, but they are, are the brothers and sisters from uh, Feed Island, which is Nukumanu, Motloks, and Tasman. And we are all um, isolated from Bougainville, but we are all part of Bougainville as a province of Papua New Guinea. We have to move 1,000 700 people, meaning we have to move 150 families off Cartridge Islands due to impacts of rising sea levels, 
shoreline erosion, uh, frequent storm surges, and also our food is being lost because the land is getting smaller. Um, every year our seawalls are being washed away. Um, our food gardens uh, virtually cannot produce food that normally we would have produced many years back. Uh, so we, we have lost a lot of our food crops. And there is hardly any arable land where we can grow our food anymore. And this is why we have to move. Have you yourself seen this, these changes? Have you lived through these changes yourself? I was on the island three months ago, uh, basically going back and seeing my family. Um, and our work, although we are based on mainland Bougainville, we frequently go back to the island to basically monitor the projects of uh, raised bed gardening and mangroves uh, planting on the island. So you have actually seen quite a bit of difference as well between the times that you've been there. I have seen big, big changes. One of the islands, which is um, an island that belongs to my clan, has been divided in half and the gap continues to grow each year. I was going to ask you, there's an expression we have in Australia, you probably know this expression, you're a little bit like the canary in the coal mine, having to very few communities, I think, would be moving places the way you're having to move these things. I wanted to ask you about some of the stages, because you, you've been involved in this, and the stages that are involved in actually moving people. And my sense of it is that to relocate people, there's two stages. One is the local people that you have to move, and then the other stage is the the people whose community the people will move into, they have to be prepared as well. Talk, Tell us a little bit about the first stage, getting people in the community ready to go. What what have you been doing? Thank you. We, we actually have a, a three-stage um, process in our program. The first stage is preparing uh, families of the island um, to move. As w- and the second stage is Making sure the host community is is welcoming to the to the new people who ha- who will move into their uh, location. The third stage is basically making sure that both communities, the relocated families and the host community, are working together to continue to build these relationships. So the first stage uh, meant that we had to um, do a lot of uh, community. Um, assessment of how the islanders wanted to move, why they wanted to move, mm. what were they going to, to do when they moved to, to a new location. And in the second stage, we, we needed to get the host community to go back to the islands to experience their life on the island themselves so that they will be welcoming to our people. And so it needed a whole lot of these exchanges, um, working together, building relationships. And in our third stage, we we continue to build on that. We want to solidify relationships by integrating both the relocated families and the host community and making sure that we, we are strengthening our relations through our clan tie systems. So we are doing that, and it con- we continue to do that 
by making sure that we take part in the ceremonies of the host community as well as they taking part in, in whatever we do in our new location. Is there questions, issues to do with language? Do the communities speak the same language or are they different languages? Some of our cultural um, ceremonies are similar, but the language of the host community is quite different from our um, vernacular on the island. Um, but we are related through our clan systems, which is connecting us to each other. So people moving to the host community, they would basically they would have to become bilingual. I, I, would that be right? Uh, that is right, and and already the the small kids, our the the children of the relocated families, are going to the to the school of um, the host community, and they they are learning um, songs. Um, they have already learned the language, and some of them can speak the language. Okay. So the stage, go back to stage one. Stage one has already taken place. Is that right? You, you've already moved a number, over nearly 2,000 people. Is that is that, is we, that the way it works? We, we have moved 10 families, so we are lo- talking about 103 um, uh, individuals who are now relocated in our new site. Mm. Um, and we we started moving them in 2009 and in 2011. Right. And you've been involved in this process as it's been going along. We, I was involved in a process from 2006 onwards. Right, right. And the other thing I wanted to ask about was um, in terms of stage two, Going into the host community, I guess the reason, look, just to preface all this, I guess the reason I'm asking these questions is, like I said, you're the canary in the coal mine means that to to my way of thinking is you're kind of like almost like a case, uh, 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 almost like a case that, that needs to be looked at because the success or not or the difficulties, obviously other communities are going to be following this as well. Um, the, st- the second stage, the host, hosts getting familiar, what were some of the issues that came up with that? Was there, was there certain amounts of difficult, over, difficulties that you had to overcome to, to make them more accepting of, of these people coming in? We, we did community profilings and surveys, community surveys with the host community, making sure that they fully agreed with, um, with a new group of people coming into the community. Um, we we also did a uh, chief exchange program where we got the elders and chiefs from the host community and brought them to the island. And so they, they saw the situation on the cartridge for themselves. And also um, we involved the young people to basically get together and and do speaking to us throughout the uh, host community communities right um and so they did that as well as as that we um we we try to uh, be involved in their ceremonies mm-hmm. um and we also take part in in helping to to build the schools um to uh, make sure that the schools are uh, you know, they, they've got new classrooms, so our community fully takes part. We we also take part in their voting system. We we no longer vote for um, politically. We, we 
we vote for the rep in our host community. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. We're hearing from Ursula Rakova from the Carteret Islands of Papua New Guinea. Talking now at a public forum in Melbourne, Ursula explained the work Tulelo Piazza is doing, creating new homes for her people in Bougainville. So what have we done? We've helped families to get established. Um, these are the homes we are building for the families. So um, it's iron roofing because we want to collect rainwater. So each of the family houses has a water tank um, so that they don't need to um, walk long distances to uh, get water. So the water from the tank is mainly used for drinking and cooking. Um, the outside of the house is uh, walled by bamboo so that it's, um, it's in line with the kind of houses that our host community has. Um, so a lot of these families are growing uh, food crops um, to sustain their, themselves. They are also growing. Um, in each of the families, we allocate one hectare of land. So they are able to plant 300 cocoa trees. Um, you've eaten chocolate, you know how you've eaten a lot of chocolates, I know. <laughs> yeah, so chocolate comes from cocoa trees. Yeah. So they've uh, planted 300 cocoa trees in their own blocks. And then the other half of the land is used for food, uh, food crops. So, um, out of the 300 cocoa trees, we have rehabilitated 14 hectares of land with 8,950 cocoa trees plus 300 badwood trees. These are cocoa-resistant um, uh, plants where we hope to bud or cut pieces of this um Badwood trees and, and share it with other families in our host community. So what are the other developments we've made? Um, so far we have planted 34,000 trees, just native trees, in our new location. But we aim to plant 1 million trees. So these trees comprise of hardwood, softwood, uh, nut trees, fruit trees, and palm trees. And we um, we attach. Uh, you can see Bruno, the man in in blue. He's almost lost in the forest. <laughs> um, he's actually a local food security expert. So we. We get him and his um, volunteers um, on a two-month interval to come in and help us. Um, on the cartridge, we, we are encouraging families to um, do raised bed gardening so that they can uh, plant a, a few um, 
food crops and greens so that they can sustain themselves while we are working on um, on mainland to try and uh, bring them quickly as, as possible as we can. So this is the raised bed garden on, on cartridge and we have another project also with where we are bringing in uh, mangrove seedlings um, which we also entail to use um, to give to the family so they can grow it themselves. So this program in our first location we want to replicate in our second location as well. I read that you're raising awareness. You've been raising awareness in various international forums, including the UN. What do you tell people when you're doing that kind of thing? I think what needs to happen is that um, the the big communities um, need to really... Um, I mean, the countries need to to speak to their own governments, you know. Uh, and, and governments like in Paris, um, a lot of the governments agreed or the countries agreed to to sign the um, the uh, uh, Convention on Climate Change. But I think they should sign and ratify this convention so that they fulfill their commitment towards this agreement. Because the lives of many people affected by climate change heavily relies on this agreement. And it's not just the cartridge. It's also other Pacific islands like Tuvalu, Kiribati, the Marshall Islands, who are going through the same fate. Where will, they, where will these people mm. have to move to? So we need to act and we need to act now. Hmm. Look, uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I completely agree with what you're saying. And you're in Australia at the moment. What would you be telling Australians about about what they can do and how they can be involved and what they should be thinking about? Australia is a big neighbor in, in the Pacific. And Australia has the, has the privilege to start thinking now. It's a big neighbor in, in, in the Pacific, Australia has the ability to help us, to help low-lying atolls in the Pacific, island nations in the Pacific. Australia needs to act immediately as impacts of climate change are getting worse. We cannot wait anymore. Australia needs to put resources in place to provide support to communities like us who are vulnerable to impacts of climate change. And we cannot, we do not have the financial resources to help ourselves. Australia is in a unique position as the co-chair of the Green Climate Fund to assist the people of the Carterets, according to Wendy Flannery. She's the convener of the Climate Frontlines Collective of Friends of the Earth in Brisbane. I caught up with her at the Melbourne leg of Ursula's speaking tour and I asked her what she is calling on the Australian government to do. First of all, we know that Australia is going to sign the Paris Agreement, on the 22nd of April at the ceremony in New York, and we're very pleased about that. Uh, We were hoping that they might use the opportunity to ramp up 
the targets and timetables that they presented in Paris because these were far from adequate uh, in relation to Australia's responsibility for uh, cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, the thing that hasn't happened at all yet, as far as we know, is that uh, the Australian treaty body hasn't been uh, notified that they need to have this ratified in the Australian Parliament. So uh, we think that that should happen uh, immediately after the, the document is signed in Paris, just to give that extra momentum and for us to be able to recognise that it is a sincere commitment to doing something serious about this issue. So that's one thing. Uh, Secondly, um, we know that uh, Australia is one of the co-chairs of the Green Climate Fund um, that is part also of the UNFCCC process now um, and that that fund is now being dispersed, uh, that mechanisms are being put in place for, for governments in particular to apply for uh, that fund. What we'd like to see is some kind of opening for organisations like Tulele Pesa, NGOs who are really actively doing things to address uh, climate displacement in particular, you know, which is beyond adaptation actually when people have to actually move and, and change their whole uh, location and start a new life altogether, it's far beyond adaptation. So um, we'd, we'd really like to uh, see if those who are managing that, uh, that fund could make an opening for at least some possibility for NGOs to use some of that funding as well. And uh, I think the other thing um, that we've been thinking about and talking about for quite a while and has been discussed in Australia but constantly being put on the long finger is the issue of climate migration. Uh, in the case of Tulele Pesa, people are migrating uh, within the country, uh, there will be people in the Pacific who will need to migrate elsewhere. Uh, we would like to, Australia has a unique opportunity because of the, uh, the the smaller numbers really of people that are likely to be facing this situation in the Pacific <clears throat> to right now start to build uh, <clears throat> avenues with the Pacific governments for uh, migration, uh, so that um, people uh, are not just rescued at the last minute where they're in dire straits, but they have uh, able to to follow a migration channel in a dignified way and a way that respects their human rights. And this is something that so far has been. Is it true to say that this is something that's been requested by various Pacific nations and has so far been refused by uh, Australia? Well, what we do know is that. The government of Tuvalu, uh, 15, no, 16 years ago, made the first attempt to discuss it with the then Australian government. And um, what they reported afterwards was we had the door slammed in our faces. So they have since taken another tack in Tuvalu. The government has tried to develop an alternative approach to the, uh, to the, the question. Um, which probably we don't need to discuss here. But, uh, you know, the, um, the government of Kiribati has already purchased land in Fiji. Uh, they say it's for food, but uh, it's clear that, you know, it's, it's probably going to be seen as a place where some people could move, even though it's totally, uh, uh, you know, 
totally different place from what Atoll peoples are used to. And uh, we, we, Ursula and I were in a, a meeting in Fiji early, early 2014, uh, where several of these uh, programs were, uh, were being discussed. There were two relocation communities in Fiji that were part of the discussion. Uh, but there was also a person there from Kiribati, and uh, she actually, the th one of the things that moved me very much was, she said, well, uh, if our people uh, have to move, they would want to take the bones of their ancestors with them. And so, uh, you know, she was looking across at that land that had been purchased by the Kiribati government and wondering whether they could not only move there themselves, but bring the bones of their ancestors with them. Wendy Flannery from the Climate Frontlines Collective of Friends of the Earth Brisbane. Asked at the forum in Melbourne about how she felt about her people losing their homes, Ursula insisted they would never lose contact with their atoll completely. After the sea has washed away all the trees and everything else, we still want to protect the reef so that we can go back to it and fish and return to our new homes. You can support Tulela Piesa in their relocation program by making a tax-deductible donation. Go to givenow.com.au forward slash F-O-E-T-U-L-E-L-E-P-E-I-S-A. That's www.givenow.com.au forward slash F-O-E-T-U-L-E-L-E-P-E-I-S-A. To find out more, go to foe.org.au or find Friends of the Earth Climate Frontlines on Facebook. And thank you to John Langer from 3CR for the interview with Ursula. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Australia's weekly environmental justice program for community radio. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Kulin Nations. You can contact us on 03 9419 8377 or earthmatters3cr at I hope you can tune in next week for more Earth Matters. Sunrise from polluted seas Fishing in the rivers for a blue-out key Breathing this air here could kill old mania The whole earth becoming a huge gas chamber Just on the wall, which side you stand For the dirty dollar or the pristine land Just on the wall
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.